And so we've come to the end of the series here on Crime of the Century. We have gone all the way up from the Reformation to the 1990s to see how academia started in the modern sense of the word, all the way up through the ages to where we get to today. Now in the last podcast, we talked about some of the framework that started a lot of the divisions that we now see in the United States and how it starts in the academic field and unfortunately is at the base of it the Marxist beliefs that we talked about way back uh, in the early podcast about 68 which was which covered Karl Marx. Now all this started with podcast number 61 which was about Western civilization in general so if you haven't caught up uh, go back and, and watch that and then bring yourself up to where we are. Today we're uh, going to be discussing the 2000s so we're going to be discussing the terror attacks of 9-11 and the academic response to that and also we're going to be looking at why 2008 happened and how that was started in academic fields and finally we will get to the background for the crime of the century. So, and it's crazy to think that there are people now who were born after 9-11 who, who really, who are going to be, you know, functioning adults in the society and obviously that, that happened with Pearl Harbor. There are people now, you know, who more people, much more people who don't even remember Pearl Harbor, uh, it happening at all. So the same thing will happen with, with 9-11. But it's just crazy to think that because, of course, there's so much more uh, video of 9-11 and, and it, it was a tragedy that, tragedy that still is in the hearts and minds of, of many of us. And considering we still have many of our troops in the Middle East, it's something that comes up time and time again. But the difference between Pearl Harbor and the attacks on the Twin Towers was the response of both the American people, the American media, and the American academics. When Pearl Harbor happened, the response of the American public was to immediately sign up, even if you're 16 years old, and, and go and, and fight in one of the toughest wars that we've ever been involved in against an enemy who would not surrender and would not quit. And it took four very, very long years, four hard years, but it was still a victory nonetheless. But we had an American media that was supportive of our, our men fighting the Japanese. They were supportive of the war effort the American academics were, in most cases, supportive of attacking both Germany and Japan. But this wasn't really the case with 9-11. Now, in the immediate aftermath, people did rally around the flag. There, there was a short bipartisan time where both sides were honoring what had happened. But that quickly disappeared. By 2003, the media full force attacking George Bush, attacking intervention in the Middle East, and academics were 
very anti-war. Now, part of that was the change uh, from Vietnam, where a lot of these guys had now been an academic, uh, in academia, and they were just a peace at any cost, always anti-war. America's the bad guy, we shouldn't be at war. So what changed and what drove this ideology behind? We're still attacking a, 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 a tough foe, and I know Obama called the Taliban and ISIS the JV team, but these people are still willing to die for what they believe in and will not surrender and will choose to fight instead of uh, instead of surrender and, and, and give up and pursue a more peaceful means of, of getting what they want. So we take the same determination that we had after Pearl Harbor to defeat them. But what killed that American drive? Well, there was a couple things. And it came from the idea that mostly started in academia, and it's something that we talked about in our episode with Louis XIV, how a number of philosophies that came out that, that essentially painted Western society and Western philosophy as corrupting, that man was born pure and free in a state which society then corrupted. And so in order to fix that, you essentially had to reform society and that you had to not, when you had kids, you had to not discipline them because you don't want to attack the pure-natured child with your Western ideas. And this is partly the same philosophy in the East, or in the Middle Eastern conflict, in the sense that we view the other side and we, and we say what, on the left in particular, we say, what did we do wrong that they are now attacking us? The answer is we did nothing wrong. They just see us as the enemy. Now, when it came to uh, Japan, they attacked us because they were running out of oil. And they were running out of oil because after they decided that they were going to genocide the Chinese and the Koreans, we decided as a country that we weren't going to support that by giving them any more oil. And the British joined us in that, and the British were fighting the Germans at the same time, so they weren't about to give the Japanese any oil. And so the Japanese war machine was grinding to a halt. They needed to get us out of the war, or they needed to force us into a treaty that would give them the oil that they needed. So the Japanese unprovoked attack on the U.S. had to do more so out of, out of a necessity, that, that they needed oil and they thought as though it was their destiny to rule the Pacific. Now we, at that time and still do, had Hawaii um, under our sphere of influence. And so the Japanese were trying to kick us out of that small island chain and essentially destroy the U.S. Navy in that region. With the conflicts in the Middle East and the 2000s, the ideology was similar in the sense they viewed the U.S. as this evil anti-Islamic force, which we are. We don't support Sharia law. We don't support what Islam is and what it does to women and those who are of different faiths. The Islamic people are ordered to 
suppress women. They're ordered to murder infidels. They are ordered to do pretty much everything that is counter to our Western beliefs. And yet we have academics who write extensively about how evil the U.S. is for intervening after 9-11. Now that seems backward to me. It may not seem backward to you, but we, if we believe that the equality of man is essential, that everyone is born equal, that we are, have the liberty to carry on our lives as we see fit, why are now we the bad guys when we attempt to defend that belief? We often forget that we were attacked. We often forget that we were not the aggressor. Yes, we have a military presence in the Middle East, and we always have, and a lot of that is to prevent the Russians from regaining control of the region. But that in and of itself does not mean that the U.S. is the bad guy. That means we have interests that we are looking to defend, like any other nation. And I believe that our principles are worth defending. And you look at the effects of attacking our beliefs. You look at the effects of attacking a conflict that, that had to be fought in the Middle East. And you realize that the what the academics teach is not limited to college campuses, the effects of which can be felt throughout the nation, that ideas have consequences. We can see that when we talked about the Reformation and we talked about the change in the church and how it changed Europe fundamentally. We saw in the 1800s, we saw that the ideas of the Enlightenment had consequences that led to this huge industrial explosion and, and industrial revolution uh, not even a hundred years later that again fundamentally changed both Europe and the United States. We saw that in 1912 the effects of nihilism and how it affected the fallout of World War One and led to the rise of radical regimes in Germany and France. And now here, in the 2000s, we can see the ideas that started back in the 1960s, peace at any cost, the U.S. is the bad guy, we don't have the right to defend our liberties even overseas. That academic idea cost us and so many individuals in the Middle East peace, security, liberty, and freedom. So when we're sending our children off to college and they come back with these ideas, and whatever the academics are telling them and teaching them, it has consequences on a much larger scale. Now, when it comes to 2008, the unfortunate effects can be found back in the 90s. We talked a little bit about the race relations and how they were improving very steadily throughout the 1980s and into the 90s. But there was one regulation which was pushed heavily in Ivy League academic circles. And this was the idea that banks were still redlining. Now redlining was a practice in the 1950s where banks would essentially not loan, give loans to black people in certain areas even if they could afford it based on their skin color. And that's wrong. Just because they have black skin color doesn't mean that they aren't allowed to 
live in a certain area. We can agree that that's wrong. But the statistics would say that there were still certain neighborhoods in the 1990s that, that had a larger white population than black population. And so that can be contributed to a number of things. Historically, um, African uh, people who have African descent here uh, were unfortunately slaves. So they started off with making no money for their work. So their families, now that they're over here, started off with nothing. Then in the 1870s and 1880s, they were, and up to about the 1960s, they were subject to segregation, Jim Crow laws in the, in the South, and even the North, we forget, but there was still a prevalent amount of, of racism in the North um, that really, it didn't always prevent black people from succeeding, but it made it very difficult. And obviously this redlining practice wasn't in the 1950s just regulated to the South. But by the 1990s, a lot of this had dissipated. Um, and you can make arguments that it still exists and for a long, as long as there have been human beings, there's been racism. You can't get rid of people. You unfortunately can't get rid of stupid people and, and stupid people are more likely to be racists. Uh, understandably, just because if you if you want to be if you want to be a victim and you want to say that you're victimized by somebody of a different skin color, then you're going to find any excuse to do that. But the statistics were telling these academics that we needed to make a mandatory shift. That if somebody was of a certain socioeconomic background, if they were of a certain skin color, you had to make that loan regardless. This was a Clinton era um, regulation and essentially what it led to was a bunch of people taking out loans on houses that they couldn't pay back so the bank was being forced to foreclose on that property and that would drive the value of that property down and if you know real estate it would also drive the property values of the house, uh, houses around that foreclosed building it would bring those down as well just because the comps would be lower. Now, this, the other thing it did was it created a large bubble of values of, uh, for buildings that really weren't valued, were not worth what they were valued. And so people were paying these, these huge mortgages and, and had what they thought was equity in homes that, that didn't exist. So when that bubble burst just before the 2008 election, Housing uh, values went through the floor, stock prices went through the floor, people lost money, corporations lost money and had to lay massive amounts of people off. And unfortunately, that meant that a lot of these people that were given these loans were sent back to their original situations. And this, it can be argued, drove additional animosity, but, but this academic idea of loan forgiveness or loans that are favored, uh, that favorite people of a socioeconomic background really do have real consequences. And we are still feeling the effects of this market crash in 2008. And that's kind of where we stand, where we've got, as we've examined in, in, in the 1990s, we have a, an academic philosophy that is counter to our American ideas. It's still racist as we discussed during 
in the 90s episode about white privilege. It's unfortunately um, steeped in Marxist principles. We talked about structure and power hierarchies and how they're described to the American student. And unfortunately, those consequences are real. They've caused us defeats in Vietnam, in the Middle East, and economic defeats in 2008, 2012. The effects of this, if we are to falter as a country, there is nowhere else for anybody to turn. What are you going to say to the Cubans who are escaping the communist regime there? What are you going to say to the people south of the border who are escaping failed states? If we can't control our finances, if we can't control our country, if we can't rein in our academic philosophies that have radical implications. So on this final podcast that we'll be doing next week, um, number 75 on crime of the century, we're going to discuss all of this much more in depth and we'll get really a full look. Now that we understand the background for the crime of the century, we'll get a full look at all of the effects that have played into the greatest crime of this century.